after the 2015 season, you're a free agent. How much do you would you like to stay in Detroit? How much? Too much. <laughs> you like it here? I love, I love it here. Good morning, and welcome to episode 416 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Hello. Hello. Uh, so the season preview series is over. Today we will do a listener email show, and then next week we'll somehow get back to coming up with our own topics. I was hoping we might have somebody on to help us preview every minor league affiliate team. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea. should probably do some of the, the top College World Series contenders also. Uh, okay, uh, so we got a bunch of questions here. Um, I guess we should start with the most topical one. Um, okay. Eric Hartman asks, can I request yeah. a hot take on the Miguel Cabrera extension? So that was a few hours ago. We both had time to heat up our takes. Um, do you have a hot one? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I could. I, I guess I could give you my 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 closest thing to sort of like a like a hot pondering. I have like a like a little bit of a hot pondering, I guess. Okay. It's not that hot though. Do you have one? Uh, I'll try. I'll try. See, I, I'll just say I, this is not a. I don't have a hot take, no. Um, but uh, I was thinking, you know, you and I have a mutual friend who's a little bit cranky and uh, <laughs> and gets uh, you know annoyed whenever anybody says anything on Twitter. And one of the things that he was complaining about today uh, was that people were bringing up Miguel Cabrera's DUI a lot, and uh, the people who were against the deal and who were sort of finding various, uh, you know avenues to mock it uh one of the ways that they they mocked it is noting that you know cabrera is a uh you know he's he's got the dui and he's got the domestic violence and so you know just not a you know in in while he seems like a really cool dude and everything you know he's got a criminal record that suggests he's not and so our friend was uh saying that's you know that's silly and that's dumb um and i think that to you know to some degree i mean it, yeah I, i'm kind of a little bit with that however uh, the the DUI is is different, right? Because he checked into rehab, and you know theoretically acknowledged being, um, you know, an alcoholic, and that to me seems like totally fair game. Not, not I don't fair game sounds wrong. Fair game is not the way to, to 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 say it, but it seems like if you're evaluating the risk of him in a ten year in a ten year context, um, you know his his alcoholism is is significant, right? I mean alcoholism is a disease. It's uh, it's essentially uh, you know something like having you know like a like a like a health risk that pops up uh, or or threatens to pop up periodically and um, it's you know it's a, it's really hard it's it's a, it's a real struggle to get through ten years and um, so I was thinking about that but but the thing is that we don't actually know if Cabrera is an alcoholic you know we know he checked into rehab mm-hmm. and we know he drank to excess. But, you know, not everybody who's a drunk is an alcoholic. And so maybe he checked into rehab because he, you know, that's what you do when you're a public figure and you get caught doing something bad like a DUI. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this weird situation where we don't know whether he's just a, a sort of a bad guy who drinks and then doesn't think about the consequences or if he's a guy who's got like a like a disease and, and that it takes him into dark and dangerous places that we should really sympathize uh with and and it's sort of um like almost paradoxical where not paradoxical that's the word i'm going to use anyway where if he's an alcoholic like an actual addict who struggles with this disease every every day i would have a like a lot of sympathy for him and generally uh i wouldn't hold it against him all that much as a person but i would definitely not want to give him a 10-year contract because mm-hmm. I, like I would just know that he's got this one like vulnerability in his life that's that that would scare me, but if he's just a bad guy who drinks and then puts people's lives in danger and doesn't actually have a a, a disease and an addiction, I wouldn't be that worried about the ten years because all sorts of bad dudes have been great at baseball for ten years. But I would also think he was awful and and like it, you know just a just an absolutely rotten person. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know which one gives him more credit. I guess is what I'm saying. Like I don't know. I don't know which position is the one that that is unfair to him. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, the... How hot was that? <laughs> Any, yeah. Anytime you end with, I don't know, it probably wasn't that hot. Um, I mean, the, the, the DUI stuff didn't really even come to my mind. It would have eventually, uh, but I wasn't looking at the tweets. Um, so that wasn't the first thing that I thought about when I saw this, uh, which is you know, was, man, that's a lot of money and a lot of years. And it seems strange that they would have wanted to do this now. Um, I, I mean, it's just, you know, the the whole idea behind extending a guy before you have to, well before you have to, two full seasons before you have to, is that you get some sort of concession on your end. You, you, get, uh, you get a discount of some kind. Maybe you you get him to sign for, for a shorter term deal or just less money per year. Um, and it's, I mean, it's really hard to see this as any kind of discount either in, in length or, or terms or just an average annual value. It's a, it's a ton of money. I can totally understand why the Tigers would want to keep him because, you know, they, I mean, not only has he been, the best or second best player in baseball over the last three, four years. I mean, I, I looked back as I was writing about this to see how far back you'd have to go for Miguel Cabrera not to be in the top five most productive players over a certain span of time. Um, and you have to go all the way back to 2001 when Cabrera was an 18-year-old in A-ball for him not to show up as one of the five top players in baseball since that year. Uh, and, you know, I mean, he's coming off his best season, really. No no signs of decline, at least while he was active. I guess you could say that the groin injury was something that might not have happened to a younger player. And, uh, you know, he played a career-low number of games, which was not a low number because he's never been on the disabled list. Uh, and he had his best offensive season and his best overall season. So there's no sign of slippage yet. But uh, it's just... You know, I could, I could, I guess I could live with this deal if he were a free agent today and he signed this contract. You know, I didn't hate the the Cano deal uh, for 10 years. Was It seemed okay to me. Um, if you look at BP stats, Cano has actually only been worth something like a win less than Cabrera over the last three years or so, once you factor in his defense and, and base running and position. Um, but... If they had given him this deal today and he was on the open market and he had other people bidding for him and there was pressure to get get it done, then sure. Uh, as it is, two years before they had to extend him, I, I don't I don't see it. I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, mainly because it, it just doesn't seem like there's that much risk that his price is going to go up in the next two years. Right. Like, that's I mean, he's, he's that's mainly what it is. I mean, it, back-to-back MVP yeah. awards. Uh, He's never going to, uh, you know, unless he wins a third one and another triple crown and gets even better somehow, he's, he can't possibly raise his price at this point. So so let's imagine let's imagine that somehow the Tigers had like, uh, you know, a way of looking into the future exactly, you know, 19 months or whatever to, to when his free agency hits. And so they have a and, and like uh, uh, Jim Bowden has uh, released his predictions of what all the free agents are going to get. So they know exactly what he's going to get because Bowden's uncanny and so um so they basically have this decision where they can sign him now for you know for all that money or they can know in two years what he's going to get as a free agent if he if he is a free agent mm -hmm. i don't i don't know if this hypothetical is going to have any like uh, logical consistency to it but uh what i'm getting at is like maybe his price goes up uh as a free agent and after two more years of excellence, maybe his price goes up like what, like $30 million or $60 million or like $2 million or whatever. How much more? I mean, at the same time, he's getting older every year. So, um, yeah, but you know, I mean, he's he, so if he were a free agent now, though, he'd get certainly more than eight years and, and 240, don't you think? Uh, yeah. Or whatever. What is he getting? What is the extension worth exactly? Uh, well, it's eight. Eight years on top of the two yeah, years right. he already so has. So eight, eight years and how much money? Uh, it's two forty-eight for those additional eight. 
All right, so... And then so, there are vesting options, uh, which we don't really... I guess we don't know yet what the, the terms of those are, but if those two vesting options do vest, it would take the total to 12 and 352, counting the next two years. Let's let's keep this simpler. Okay, okay. so yeah, eight, just, year, eight, eight years, 248 is basically what they're paying him uh, for those, you know, for the extension. So uh, if he... Let's say he had two, you know, kind of MVP caliber years in a row right now. Uh, what would he get as a free agent as, you know, as a 33 year old hitting the open market, like, and, and you know, with inflation perhaps mm-hmm. going, uh, you know, going further. So he probably, he wouldn't get more than eight years, right? Eight. I don't think so. No. Okay. So eight years. And, and is it conceivable that he'd be getting 35 at that point a year, 35 million I, annual value? I guess so. I mean, I don't want to extrapolate. I don't want to extrapolate from the amount that prices seem to go up this offseason because I don't know how many teams have now signed their big TV contract. It seems like probably most of them have at this point. So the, the prices probably won't keep going up and up and up at the same rate. But um, but yeah, all right. So, I mean, it's, it's 31, eight years, 248. So... I guess if there's some inflation in the next two years and he's coming off two more seasons just like the ones he's he's had, sure, maybe. So you'd end so you'd end up having to commit thirty million more dollars. And I feel like I would I feel like if I were the Tigers, I would happily spend thirty million more. Like to me the giving up two years of of uh of observation and, you know, waiting out to see how he, you know, how he does physically. And, you know, maybe, maybe he doesn't have those two MVP caliber years like that. That weight would certainly be worth the $30 million that I'm theoretically saving by signing him early. So right. but 30 million is not even close to what, what I would value the two years of, uh, of waiting at worst case waiting costs them $30 million. Like, like if they wait and then they give him a blank check, at the end and say, we'll match anything, we'll give you more. At, you know, worst case is $30 million. Now, maybe worst case isn't $30 million more. Maybe worst case is $100 million more. Maybe the Dodgers and the Yankees bid him up to, you know, infinity. We we don't know. But if we assume that if they had waited two years, they would have ended up giving him, you know, up to $30 million more than they got. That seems like a pretty lousy right. trade-off for, for, for taking on, you know, all this extra risk two years early. Yes, right. That's all. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I can I can see why they would feel that they have to get something done if they think that there's a good chance that Scherzer is going to leave. And, of course, they they rank 27th on, on our organizational rankings and on our 25 and under talent rankings. And, you know, they've just made the playoffs and won the division three years in a row with a team that's built around his bat and many other bats and arms also. But uh, but he's been their, their best player. So I can see why you'd kind of look at the age of the roster and the the lack of star caliber replacements and then you start eyeing the the twins farm system and the royals farm system and you could get kind of paranoid about how things will look for the the tigers in a couple years and and maybe you get antsy and you want to just get this done um and uh, you know maybe you figure that it helps you recruit other free agents or something just knowing that cabrera is going to be there for the next decade um but yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, enough of a possible advantage in any way to make it make sense to me. Okay. All right. That was the closest we come to hot takes. Um, okay. Uh, let's do Matt's question. Matt says, the NBA is always fighting to raise the age of incoming players. The logic is fairly simple. The higher the age, A, the more information teams have before making a big investment, and B, the closer to a player's prime is the first contract, so less is spent on subprime years. MLB teams seem to have it the other way around, preferring to pay big money to a still uncertain prospect whenever possible, given he's got the skill set. It could be a matter of the NBA not having a strong farm system, but if so, it would seem that they just go ahead and make one. Seems either it has to do with respective natures of the two sports, or one of the two approaches is wrong. I certainly don't expect you to get into why the NBA does what it does, but what are your thoughts on the matter from Major League Baseball's side? Well, baseball teams all think that they're much more responsible with pitchers and that they um, they much prefer to get guys early because then they can, uh, you know, they can start working on 
uh, molding them earlier. They can work on protecting them earlier. They can sort of just get them into a professional environment much earlier. And um, so they, uh, they, they all think that it's much better for, you know, that for the player's development to have them in the system. Um, so I, I don't know if that weighs out the benefit or that if that cancels out, uh, outweighs the benefit of, uh, you know, getting three extra years to, to let the players, you know, labrums and elbows explode on their own so that they don't end up drafting those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's why teams are happy to, to take on the extra risk and sign guys earlier. The other thing is that the investment for, I mean, uh, for all but a few of these guys, the investment's really low. I, I don't know I don't know exactly what NBA players get when they get drafted, but like I know that um, well it seems it seems to me that they get paid more, right? I don't we don't know the answer to that. What am I saying? <laughs> yeah, not, I can't oh, help you is a terrible place. But uh, but also you need I mean, you know, there's there's a place for them uh, where there's not really a place for the NBA guys. There's not a there's not a player development system where you can shuttle all your not quite ready players. Um, you're, you just have to put them on your, basically on your, your team's roster. Whereas in baseball, there's like a whole structure set up where the players can be nurtured and, you know, you, they get, um, uh, you know, there's businesses that depend on these players being out there. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a system that sort of, uh, seems to, to work fairly well for everybody that, um, like the, it's almost like this is college for, for for players right Mm -hmm. like this is this is where you learn to be a man and where you learn to do the things that normal people do in college you Mm -hmm. get educated um all right uh let's do this question from andy uh it comes with a picture which no one listening can see but it is a picture taken in the the texas rangers dugout I, i believe a few years ago that says uh the texas rangers productive team plate appearance system and uh, it lists eight ways to have a positive team at bat. A hit, a walk, a hit-by-pitch or catcher interference, a sack fly, a sack bunt, uh, advancing the lead runner via an out, advancing the lead runner via an error, <laughs> which is an interesting one. Eight-pitch at bat is the last one. And the, the team goal is to accrue 17 at-bats in the course of a game that uh, that meet these standards for a productive plate appearance or 17 play appearances. So um, Andy asks, uh, there must be another way to express how to have a productive at-bat. I was wondering if you could name your eight, your top eight ways to a productive at-bat. And he lists his, uh, which is hit, walk, hit by pitch, sack fly, score run on ground out, move runner to third with fewer than two outs, catcher's interference, or reach base via, via error. So I... I don't think I would have eight, first of all. Uh, yeah, you don't need eight. <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be eight. <laughs> you could you could just change your, your scoring scale somehow. Um, I mean, some of these, to me, seem either not particularly productive or, you know, they're pretty much out of the batter's hands. I mean, I, I'm not going to give a guy credit for a catcher's interference. Um, I'd probably just take that out of the total. Uh, and and the other things, I mean, the, on the Wait, Rangers, you're not gonna, you don't give a batter credit for catcher's interference. Mm. I think that I think that catcher's interferences are probably like off the top of my head, I would guess that they are eighty percent uh, uh, correlated to the hitter and like twenty percent to the catcher. Yeah, I kind of remember. I, I didn't. I think Jeff Sullivan did a, a post on which hitters had the most of them. Um, I did a I did an annotated box score once on on that too, mm-hmm. and somebody had counted them. I forget who. Sorry, I can't give credit to him. And it's the same leaders every year. Uh-huh. Like you know, like seventy percent of catchers' interferences in a year come from like one guy, basically one hitter. All right. Well, fine. I'll give them that. It doesn't come up often. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. At the uh, at the Saber Analytics conference, um, Manny Acta was talking about how. After he sort of had his sabermetric conversion at some point in the middle of last decade, suddenly it it bothered him when players would celebrate a sack fly. Um, that you know they'd come back to the dugout or and they you know get get back slaps or whatever or you know some guy grounding out or whatever and and he would feel like it hadn't been a productive at bat but it was still being celebrated as one. 
Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the seventh one on the Rangers list, advanced lead runner via error, is a, is a strange one. Yeah, um, so the, I, the thing about it is not just that you don't necessarily need eight, but, like, if they're, if they're not all equal, anything that sort of counts unequal events as equal is like not not quite as uh, specific of a measurement as I would like, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if the so I, let me give you first off, the, let me tell you a little background about this because I yes, actually have do. a little background. Uh, so uh, I uh, this is actually this was a Rangers thing that was developed uh, when Scott Service was there as the director of player development, and there's a uh, there's a pitching equivalent, and it actually started with a pitching equivalent or a defensive equivalent, which is free bases. Um, and it was how many they, they count how many free bases the team gives up, and a free base was defined as you know like a runner advancing on a throw or a walk or you know anything where like the, basically the batter didn't have to hit a line drive uh, to to move the runners up. And so this came from his uncle, who was a uh, the the head baseball coach at Creighton and has been for a really long time. And um, and so he used that for defense. And they found some number that show. Okay, so if you get, they found that if you get, if you give five or fewer free bases, you win like seventy percent of the time. Uh-huh. And so they would use that to show their team, basically to create a very simple narrative for each game, so that they could tell the team the next day, like you know, in a very quick and easy way, here's how we did. And it gave the team sort of a some things to focus on in a a way of crystallizing whether they played well the day before. Mm-hmm. So then they needed something on the offensive side. And so when they hired Clint Hurdle to be, um, I think their minor league hitting coordinator, or maybe their, might have been, he might have been their hitting coach at the major league level. Uh, they, uh, uh, he and service worked on this uh, in a Starbucks in Denver. I'm looking at my notes right now. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so specific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, hurdle came up with the idea of the productive team plate appearance and it was the same thing. So if you get 17 in a game, they found you win, you know, like an equal amount of time. So then every day they would, uh, in the, the next day they'd go over the previous game and they'd say, here's how many free bases we gave up. Here's how many productive team plate appearances we gave up. So now they're doing it with the angels too. And Alden Gonzalez, who, uh, writes wonderfully about the angels for, um, MLB.com, just wrote a couple days ago about this productive team plate appearances thing in the Angels side. So, uh, so that's that's where it comes from. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just that like the the idea that okay, if you get 17 of these in a game, you're 70 percent likely to win. Um, but you know, like all 17 aren't created equal. If you if you know five of them are home runs, you'll probably win even if you only get six, right? Mm-hmm. So it it feels like like I think it was Bill James who said something about how, like, like the last thing the world needs is another offensive metric, uh-huh. like an, another hitting metric. And uh, it does feel like, uh, you know, any any idea you have for a hitting metric probably is not going to do much more than what already is out there. But yeah. if, it, if it tells a story to the players, right. I, think, I think that's really what it's for. It, mm-hmm. Like, the idea is not so much that... Um, that I don't th- I don't feel like this is so much used for them as an assessment tool. It's much more used as a um, as like a training tool. It's like you the uh, you you sort of promote whatever it is that you're counting. And when you tell the team that you're counting this thing, then it puts this in their mind and tells them that it's an important thing. And then it gets them behind it. So they want all these things to be things that hitters are kind of aware of and trying to do. Mm-hmm. So. Theoretically, so it, it keeps people maybe more tuned into the game. Maybe there's some sort of team spirit aspect where they're all keeping track of this and competing. And uh, yeah, and if a, and if a hitter is hitting 230 and you don't want him to get too down on it, you can point out, oh well, you've got you know you've had a lot of productive team player appearances in the last three weeks. Um, so you know it gives you it, like from a player development standpoint, it gives you some options. So some of these things, I mean. You're counting all of them equally, so, you know, uh, as you said, I mean, a, a triple counts as much as a, a bloop single or a, a home run counts as much as a bloop single that was just a pop fly that no one happened to be standing near. Um, or, you know, you could have an eight-pitch at-bat that wasn't even a good at-bat, right? You could have, you know, an at-bat where a 
pitcher throws three balls so far outside of the strike zone that uh, that you know no one would have swung at them, and then he throws two more, and you chase and you foul them off, and then he throws two more right down the middle mistake pitches, and you barely touch them, um, and then you end up grounding out or something. I don't know whether that's a good at bat just because you happen to to see a lot of pitches, but. Um, yeah, and and again, it's not like you you wouldn't use this as your only metric for deciding who to sign. I, I don't mm-hmm. like that's not what it's for, really. It's 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 more I think more narrative, right. and uh, you know it it just helps distill a message to to guys who you know you maybe only have fifteen minutes to talk to and they're paying attention for two of them. So would you? How many of these would you keep, uh, or do you do you think any of them is counterproductive to encourage? Um, sack fly, well, sack bunt. It depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you certainly, like every team, even teams that don't bunt hardly at all, uh, they want their minor leaguers to develop the ability to sacrifice bunt. So when you're in the minors, although, it was this in the, this was in the Rangers dugout? Yep. Okay. So, well, I don't know. If you're in the majors, presumably you're sacrifice bunting almost all the time. You're sacrifice bunting because your manager asked you to do it. And once your manager asks you to do it, well, it's better to lay one down than to 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 fail to lay one down. I mean, mm-hmm. so so I don't know that I would want guys feeling sad that they did a good job obeying a manager's orders. Um, sack fly depends on the situation. There are situations where you you definitely feel like disappointment at a sack fly, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want players to be um, like super committed to getting a sacrifice fly in every sacrifice fly situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I. I Certainly, the getting the runner over has always felt like a huge letdown to me. There's never once when I have seen a batter, you know, get the runner over by grounding out the second have I thought, yes, like that. <laughs> just never. It's always a letdown. It's like the equivalent of, of uh, you know, watching your team punt on like fourth and and inches. It just feels like such a letdown. Um, so that one, I guess, would be the uh-huh. one. It, uh-huh. That one's on there, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. So let's do our play index segment for this week. And this one was inspired by a question from a listener, Greg in DC. Uh, Greg says, so one thing I have always been curious about is how reliever usage has changed over the years, specifically the loogie idea, left-handed one-out guy. So my question is as follows. From each for each ten year period since nineteen fifty, so nineteen fifty to fifty nine, etc., with the final years being two thousand ten to thirteen, which reliever is the leader in percentage of batters faced that are the same side of the plate as they are? For example, lefties facing other lefties. I'm specifically curious to see how dramatically this has increased and who the current leader is from two thousand ten to two thousand thirteen. So. Uh, at first, we weren't sure that this could be done via the play index, but it can. Uh, we should not have doubted it. So if you want to follow along at home for some play index practice, um, you go to baseballreference.com slash play index. Uh, you go to the split finders section and click on player pitching. And uh, there you would click the little box, the little circle that says find total spanning seasons because we want to look at decades here. And then you put in the years that you want. So you put in 1950 to, to 59 for the start and end dates. Then you go to the split type dropdown, choose platoon splits. And uh, we're going to do lefty on lefty in this case. So you would want to do versus left-handed batters as left-handed pitcher. Then you check the little box there that, that says uh, compare this split to the, the player's totals. And then you can sort by batters faced uh, and choose some sort of minimum so that you don't end up with guys who face three batters. Uh, so I, I just put in a hundred innings pitch just for, for each decade that I did. And, uh, then you, you get a list and you get two columns in that list that tells you the, the total number of batters faced over that span in that split. So how many lefties that a lefty faced over that split and also the total number of batters he split, uh, he faced. So, then you can export that into Excel. One of the nice things about the the play index is that you can export any report and, and play around with it any a little bit more. Um, so I just clicked on CSV and copied, pasted everything into Excel, created a column uh, to divide the, the number of lefties faced versus the, the total batters faced. And that gave me the, the percentage for each decade. And then we, we sorted by the, the highest numbers. So 
for each decade uh, in the 1950s, the leader in the percentage of lefties faced, uh, or lefties faced as a percentage of overall batters, was Bill Henry, who faced 31.7 or 31.8% lefties. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm legit excited, by the way, to hear the results of this. Like, I'm actually <laughs> on the edge of my seat. Uh-huh. So, I might fall off. <laughs> so, Bill Henry, uh, he was a, in 1959, he led the league, his only black ink ever. Uh, he led the league with 65 games pitched, and yet he also pitched 134 innings. So he was a kind of a long man, or at least I guess everyone at that point was kind of a long man. He was also an all-star in 1960. But the most interesting thing about Bill Henry that I found out in about 30 seconds of research, also on Baseball Reference, is this story. Um in August 2007, a widely circulated obituary originating in Lakeland, Florida, announced the death of former Major League pitcher Bill Henry at age 83. However, research by Sabres' Dave Lambert located Henry alive and well and residing in, in Deer Park, Texas. Sabres' further inquiry had been prompted by discrepancies concerning Henry's date and place of birth in the obituary. Soon after, it emerged that the dead man had been claiming to be the former pitcher. Hence the mm. error. The Florida man's widow. <laughs> of course, it's a Florida, Florida man. man. <laughs> of course, <laughs> the Florida man's widow, who had been married to him for 19 years, said, "I just took his word that that's who he was. It's an awful shock. It, it's hard. I was married wow, to somebody man, that." Stop laughing when you when you get to the gr- grieving conned widow. You <laughs> yes, stop laughing. But that's the punchline. The grieving widow in this case. Uh, I, <laughs> it's hard. I was married to somebody that maybe I didn't know. So there was someone masquerading as Bill Henry, the man who faced the highest percentage of lefties in the 1950s. The good news is that the real Bill Henry is still alive and well at age 86. In the 1960s, uh, so again, so that's 31.8% in the 50s. When we go to the 60s, the percentage rises to 37.8%. And that was Bill Pleiss, um, who... Pitched for the Twins from 61 to 66 and was really not very good at it. Uh, but he faced he faced a lot of lefties. In the 1970s, it rises again very slightly, this time to 38.7. Uh, and that was Tippy Martinez. That's much lower than I expected for the 70s, by the way. I would have uh-huh. expected a much, a much uh, higher jump by then. Then I guess you will also be surprised that there was no jump in the 80s. Um, it went from the, the leader in the 70s, 38.7, leader in the 80s, 38.0. Uh, so there was no progression huh. there. Mm-hmm. That's Yeah, that's, that's interesting because by the 80s, the Rick cut was... Right, that's, I mean, you start to think of that as the, the modern bullpen era toward the end of that decade. Um, so uh, so Juan Agosto, who pitched for, for 13 years, uh, he uh, he was 38. Oh, percent. So there was no gap, no gain there. Now in the '90s, um, do you want to guess either the percentage or the pitcher or both? Uh, for the '90s, I'll guess the pitcher is Jim Pool, and the uh, total is fifty-six point seven. So Jim Pool was a very good guess. He ranked fifth on the list. Um, would you? Well, I, I mean, you've already guessed, so I guess that's your guess, and it was a good guess, but you it, will... It was a very good... I I, I feel like you're downplaying a little bit the, <laughs> the, the fact that I did guess Jim Poole. <laughs> it's a, it, yes, it, was it is, although probably once I tell you who the, the leader was, you will think it was obvious in retrospect. Uh, it's Mike Myers. Um, oh, yeah, good one. But the percentage was considerably lower. Uh, it was only 46.3% in the 90s. In the 2000s, also Mike Myers, again, um, but the percentage rose it was 57%, so pretty much what you guessed for the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then the 2010s, so for the current decade, obviously we're only dealing with uh, a few seasons, so I limited it to 50 innings pitched, and now I, I solicit Choked. guests. Choked. Chote is second on the list. Huh, interesting. Uh, I don't have a better guess than Chote. 
first guy has pitched only about half as many games as Choate, uh, so harder to come up with. It's Clay Rapata. Interesting. And do you know the percentage of Clay Rapata and 100. And 100%. Choate? <laughs> Almost the same. Uh, 71.7. Oh. So pretty big gap. Um, so so it's interesting. There's some some gap between the 50s and 60s, some very tiny gap between the 60s and 70s, no gap between the 70s and 80s, and then big gap in the 90s, even bigger gap in the 2000s, and then gigantic gap so far in this decade. Where'd Ray King rank? I don't think Ray King in the for the 2000s. I Ray King was the first name that came to mind, but I don't think he would have challenged Mike Myers. I, I would doubt that Ray King would, would be yeah. five percentage of, of Mike Myers. Uh, yeah, he wasn't. He ranked 10th. Okay. Um, the, the, the top five uh, was uh, Myers, Brian Schaus, um, uh-huh. Trevor Miller. Uh-huh. Um, oh, Javier, Javier Lopez. Sure. Um, oh, actually... Uh, Lopez is Lopez is fifth. Fourth is Bobby C. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so, uh, so we're up to seventy-one point seven this so far this decade. Um, what do you think the leader will be by the end of this decade, or what do you think the leader will be in the in the two thousand twenties? Did you by chance do you have the leader for just last year? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I mean, it's hard to do much. But, I mean. Gosh, it, it's it's hard to do. It's hard to imagine anybody topping like um, like eighty five percent. And I mean, they're so committed with Choate as it is that you have to figure like there's not going to be. It's not like there there's going to be any sort of extra prioritization of this concept. Like like the the shift happened as they you know as well, partly as bullpens grew but also as as you know managers prioritize this more and right now i feel like they've prioritized this to the max you can't prioritize it any more than is currently being prioritized with with Randy Choate <laughs> yeah you you think so although i don't know maybe people would have said that about Mike Myers at the time i mean you could imagine maybe a guy who like if if the bullpens added one person, maybe you could maybe imagine a guy who like never comes in for more than one batter, like mm-hmm. under you know unless they're they're sequential, mm-hmm. and but even like I bet Choate seventy one percent, like I bet the twenty nine percent of righties he sees, I bet of those like let's say it was I don't know how many it is, but let's say that's fifty right handers, I would bet like thirty or so of those came in relatively low leverage or. Maybe or maybe the opposite, maybe extra innings where they were kind of forced to to go to him for a little longer time. Mm-hmm. So last year, yeah. last year the high was actually only seventy percent. It was uh, it was Choate just setting a minimum of of twenty five innings. So so Choate in in the nineties or in the two thousand tens is is higher than any pitcher last year was in in one year. So maybe yes. we've already seen it. Maybe Could we're be. seeing the the the, the downslope now. Possible, possible. Okay, uh, well, good, good question from Greg. Interesting stuff. Um, you can subscribe to the the play index and and do these things yourself. Just go to baseballreference.com, click on the play index, use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of thirty dollars on a one year subscription. Okay, uh, let's take Miles's question. Let's imagine that the following two things have happened. First, Mike Trout signs a deal that pays him $20 million a year for the next five years. Two, MLB has access to a machine that literally flash clones Mike Trout. So any team can have as many Trouts as they want as long as they pay them that same contract, 5-100, 20 every year. Say you're the GM of a new expansion team that can tap into this Trout reservoir. Also in this exercise, imagine that you can buy any other pieces for your ball club in free agency. How many trouts do you buy at each payroll level? Um, so he he says fifty million, sixty-five million, seventy-five million, a hundred million, two hundred million, and five thousand million. <laughs> Which would be so five five billion would mm-hmm. be enough to to have um, to have two hundred and fifty Mike Trouts. Yeah. Okay, so you would have Mike Trout at literally every every one of your affiliates. 
every DL spot <laughs> and you'd have like 40 that you would have to cut at the end of spring training. <laughs> right. So I guess the question is, um, how much value do you think Trout gives up playing a dramatically different position? Right. So I, so you have, obviously if you can afford it, you want a Trout in all three outfield spots. If you uh, had 25, wait, if you're the 25 million team, well, we can okay. just, we can knock that one out early. So then you'd have five million dollars for your other twenty-four spots. You couldn't actually do it. So you, you could, would only no, you would only you could, be able to field like ten other guys. You could choose no trouts. Right. So if you but if you wanted one trout, right, you then could you'd only have, have to, ten other players on your team. Uh, yeah, or right. Twelve making the major league minimum. But but would you do it? <laughs> um, I don't think I would do it. <laughs> I don't, I don't either. I don't think I would. You figure, you figure if you had a twenty-five million dollar payroll and you just went all young guys like the Astros, you could get better deals than Trout at twenty million dollars just by taking advantage of the pre-arbitration mm-hmm. portions of players' careers. Right now, if you have a sixty-five million dollar payroll, um, you definitely take one Trout. Do mm-hmm. you take two Trouts and leave yourself? Uh, 25 million for the final 23 spots yes uh yeah i mean you're already 20 you know if things break right well so here's the thing if things break right you're already 20 20 wins over replacement i mean you're already a 70 right you know like a 70 to 75 win team and you've got 23 25 million dollars to play with assuming you you can i mean maybe there's some practical limits to how many replacement level players you can actually find but uh, so here's the problem, though, is that 70, you're no longer, I mean, if, if we're, there's teams out there with like nine trouts or like six trouts at least. True. You'll never, you, you just, it, it would take so many more, win, like replacement level would, what I'm saying is that a 70 win team in our current environment would not win 70 games in a league with infinite Mike Trouts. Mm-hmm. It would probably win like 40 games because there'd just be so many Mike Trouts. The standard of play would be. <laughs> would be massive right huh yeah I so so because because trout at 20 for for 20 million trout at any position is a good deal at any position at mm-hmm. third base shortstop second base first base all the outfits so seven so maybe not catcher but it's clone trout you're not really worried about you know breaking him so you probably would you probably would teach him to catch too but, but yeah, assuming, probably. I mean, the bat. on the other hand, so here's the other thing though: there'd be so many trouts that, like, like, uh, like, uh, you know, who's a pretty good player? Like, uh, uh, Jason Kipnis would not have a job because trouts would be at every team's, you know, every second base. So Kipnis would be the new replacement level. That's true. So yeah, you, I mean, anybody would, could just go. That give you a lot of incentives not to sign Trouts. Yeah, so there you'd have to you'd come to some kind of equilibrium point where. Right. So you first you, you'd have to figure out. Yeah, you you'd have to figure out how many teams are going to sign Trouts, and so then you had to figure out how many excess players are available. Um, so anyway, for uh, I think sixty-five million is. Is probably not two trouts. I think if it's sixty-five million in this landscape, you take your one trout, and then you use your forty-five million. You have to aim higher. Two trouts takes up too much of your payroll. You know that you're not going to be a ninety-five win team. This question is—is is this question better if we just assume that only our team can have multiple trouts? It is not close to better it is significantly <laughs> worse it's just so much more complicated though when you have to account for the new replacement level in in clone trout league um yeah well, yeah ben all it's, right so so if you're you take... you're having to you're having to think through multiple <laughs> levels it's it's okay all right well if you all right so if you have 75 million then you take two trouts i don't know that you do why if, i didn't i wouldn't even trouts. think about it at 65 so why would i at 75 so now i have 35 million dollars left for 23 players again i mean i'm assuming that this the level of play is going to be very high mm. and i don't think it's going to be quite balanced out by the jason kipnis is floating around so i i think that i've got to take my 20 million and use it to develop uh 
I don't even know what I would use to develop. What are you going to develop prospects who are as good as Trout? <laughs> well, no, what you need is you need to figure out a way to get uh, good players who are pre-arb at that point. You just can't. Because mm. you figure, like, start with the Dodgers. You know the Dodgers are going to have seven, right? Mm-hmm. So how good is that team? They've got seven Trouts, so they have $140 million committed. So that means they have $100 million more just to spend on pitching and a catcher. And so now they've now they've not only got seven trouts, but they've got like, you know, something like all all stars across their the rest of their team. Yeah. Uh, and and if trouts basically like, let's say trouts a nine win player in center, an eight win player on the corners, and a six win player at at all the infield positions. I so mean, now you're the team is almost unbeatable, right? I mean, there's 50, it's fifty wins. It's already even not counting the pitching and the catchers. You're already a hundred win team. <laughs> like even if it's all replacement level at the other positions, you're a hundred win team. And there's just no way to top it because you can't get a player better than Trout at those positions. I mean, maybe you can get one at the two positions where they don't have a Trout, but uh, probably not enough to make up the gap between Trout and everyone else's all the other so positions. So you'd need so let- like massive injuries or terrible luck for that team not to win. Right, so would Cano's price go up or down in this scenario? Down, right? Because down, you right? could you could get you could get Trout for less. You you can get Trout for less, and even though Trout we we've Trout is worse than Cano in in our telling because we've decided that Trout is a six win player at second base, which probably we shouldn't. He's probably better than that. Yeah, there's no reason to think that he wouldn't be better than that. But uh, but then you might see the Dodgers going well. You know, we have nowhere else to to separate ourselves from the Yankees. So maybe the Yankees and the Dodgers then maybe this because like maybe this is the, you know, the the proxy war that these two superpowers fight, you know, and it's it's just over that extra half win they can get it at second base. And maybe they end up spending 45 million dollars on Cano just to get an extra half win at second base because they can separate themselves from the other one. Mm-hmm. Probably not though, but maybe maybe that's their uh maybe that maybe that's their uh their Korea. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, I guess we don't even have to, I mean, at, at the $5 billion level, you would, uh, you'd obviously get as many trouts as you can fit. Uh, yeah. Do you think, yeah, I mean, yeah, you would. <laughs> well, no, you wouldn't, you would get, well, you'd get seven and then you'd get like, like six or seven in reserve. But <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to get 25 trouts. No, no. Do all and the trouts don't all age at once. I mean, we're assuming that this machine can 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 flash clone these at will. So you wouldn't even need a reserve. I wonder if you'd need to. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So if you get a if you get a fresh trout, um, presumably it's as old as trout is currently. You know, they take they take uh, they or well, yeah, I guess. The question is, do they keep producing trouts who are the same age? Are the clones always 21 years old? Or do they clone trout, however old he is? Because then you'd have different trout aging curves, or you'd have different, you'd have clones at different points along the curve. And if the clones are always the same age, then you'd have to consider buying new trouts every year to replace the old trout. You know, it just occurred to me how smart it was that you didn't preface this with, okay, this will be our last question, because I'm pretty sure everybody would have turned off by now. Every single person would have turned off by now. Yes, it probably has. Um, okay, well... What, uh, what do you... Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Enough. <laughs> no. <laughs> crazy, crazy question. Um, uh, while we were talking, Dan Brooks sent me a question that he demanded that we answer. How long until we get a contract that is most easily measured in billions? So, like, like, would a half billion count? Uh, yes, I guess so. So, uh, but not, not really. Yeah, I mean, because if, if it was five hundred and one thousand, uh, five hundred and one million, you wouldn't say fifty-one hundredths of a billion. Mm, right. So it would have to basically be a billion, right? Wouldn't it have to be a billion? Uh, yes, probably. That would save you a lot of time to be able to say a billion. Uh-huh. So, if the the total possible commitment of Cabrera's contract is something like three hundred and fifty-two, if those options vest, so we are nowhere near there. Um, and the really the the top edge 
of contracts hasn't increased all that rapidly. I mean, that the average average earnings have, but if you look at the the top earners a decade ago and the top earners now, it's not a not a huge difference. Um, and I can't imagine that teams are going to start giving. I don't know. I guess maybe if everyone signs extensions and there are only a few free agents available every winter, then you'd give the the best guy a very long contract. But still, you'd need a whole lot of inflation to get anywhere close to that. Right. Because you could imagine Trout when he's a free agent at 26. I don't think Trout will get this, but you could imagine when he's a free agent at 26 uh, being worth, say, $50 million a year over 12 years. Mm-hmm. So then theoretically, that's more than halfway there. And then you might say, well, I, you know, 18 years or something. But um, I don't think he'll, he'll get that. So I would guess like 40 years. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the under on that. I mean, right now, the most valuable franchise is worth two and a half billion, I think, is the most recent figure I saw for the Yankees. So talking about a player alone who's, you know, making a, a large percentage of that, I... But a lot of a lot of players have made a lot of players have received contracts that are bigger than their franchise was sold for. You know, like the mm-hmm. even the, like I think that Artie Moreno bought the Angels for something like 150 million, mm-hmm. and that's that's not anything special. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know what was the what was the biggest contract commitment 20 years ago. I mean, if you if you if you project it out along the same same line yeah 20 but the the problem like you said 10 was not Mm -hmm. that much 10 years ago was 250 million and now it's 320 million so um the spike happened you know in the 90s right in Mm -hmm. the 90s and early 2000s it slowed down yeah since then Eh, all right but then so is the so is the economy yeah i'll say 30 years all right Seems fine. Artie Moreno bought the Artie bought the Angels for 180 million, and at about the same time, A Rod signed for 252. Hmm. All right, so we'll be back on Monday with original topics. Hopefully, we'll talk about baseball or something. Um, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/effectivelywild, which, as I look at it right now, has 995 members. So you can get us into four digits. Uh, you can. Follow us or subscribe to us and rate and review us on iTunes. That would be appreciated. And you can send us questions for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Hope you enjoyed the preview shows. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday.